That's what we're praying for. We're praying that the people of God will be witnesses for God. It's so exciting when we see some of our young adults taking off to other countries to learn, to become better equipped to serve him, or even to go there and serve as one of his witnesses to the people of another nation. There are so many who have not heard. There are so many who need to understand the gospel. They do not all live in Asia or Africa or Cambodia. Many of them live in Carrollton, Texas. They live right here among us. And so I'm excited on this uh, day as we begin this sermon series on You Will Be My Witnesses. Let us pray. Holy God, you are a great and a mighty God. You are a God who plans for the future. You are a God who calls forth children in his name. You are a God who sends people to learn more about you. You are a God who comes to those who seek to know more about you, even in the stillness of their homes, all the way to the highest steeple churches and on to seminaries where your word is taught and the spirit of it is caught and held on to by those who soak it up. You are the God who calls us to walk to our neighbor next door to share a word of hope and to lend a helping hand. You are the God who inspires us to teach our children what we want our children to learn and to know that you came for us, that you died for us, that you are still with us in the spirit and that one day soon you will be with us again even as your son Jesus was when he walked this earth. For this gift of promise that is ours and for this opportunity to be yours and work in your kingdom, we give you thanks and praise. Now open up to us, Lord, the power of the scripture that we might hear it in its writing and in its context and in its culture, that it might speak to us in such a way that we will be effective as your witnesses in the places where we live and serve until we die. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Would you please stand for the reading of the scripture? Beginning with Acts chapter 1, verse 1, and reading through verse 8. I'm going to read this morning from the New American Standard Version, and later on I'll repeat some of it in the message. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs when the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea 
and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. This is the word of God for the people of God. Please be seated. Listen to how the writer wrote it in the message when he said, They were gathered together for the last time. They asked, Master, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? Is this the time? He told them, you don't get to know the time. Timing is a father's business. What you'll get is the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will be able to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, all over Judea and Samaria, even to the ends of the world. We're always wanting that which we don't get, aren't we? (laughs) We always want to know. I get tickled at the books that so many people write and sell in bookstores. I get a little tickled at some people I know that buy them. Of course, I'm sure that's none of you, probably. They buy these books that are telling them when Jesus is going to return. Even though Jesus plainly said, you're not ever going to know that. Nobody's going to know when I'm going to show up again. Not anybody except the Father. I don't even know that. But people are still writing books telling you when he's coming, and you can be assured he's not coming when they write it. A little bit of biblical wisdom for you to cherish in your heart and hold on to it. That's why I'm so happy when somebody says, well, Jesus is coming on this date in the future. Because I know he's not coming then. If I can live till then, I've got at least that many more days. <laughs> Evangelism is a word that has become kind of, well, let's just say church people are not all that fond of evangelism. Let's just say that in the world in which we live today, your next door neighbors, if they happen to not be going to church, are also not that happy with the word evangelism. They don't really like the word evangelism because it kind of conveys something that they don't have and that whoever's coming to share the evangelism with them is bringing the good news which is not going to seem very good to them because they don't like anybody telling them they don't have something that they think they already have. In fact, we live in a world which is very spiritual at this time. Many people are seeking spiritual connections. They are looking for the spirit in all kinds of ways so that they can experience God, this God that they believe in, and the kind of power that they want to, and especially according to their own experience. Especially according to their own experience. Because you see, the postmodern world is all about experience. And because the postmodern world is all about experience as a ground for all truth, that means that whatever I experience, or think I've experienced, that whatever I know about truth, or think I know about truth, becomes the truth because, after all, I believe it. And, in fact, many Christians are so convinced by that same mindset today that they don't get too excited if somebody's not a Christian worshiping in a Christian church because, after all, they do believe in God. And, after all, they learn their belief about God in their culture. And so, after all... Everybody knows some kind of truth in their own mind, and I'm sure that's good enough. After all, it is what they feel, and we do know for sure that what we feel is truth, right? Wrong. Wrong. There is, whether our culture likes it or not, still an objective reality that Jesus Christ is the only person that we've known who has died and been resurrected from the dead. He was the first. He's been the last, except those who have been resurrected in heaven in a different body. He's the only one. And if you can show me somebody else, or if you can show me a hundred witnesses that have seen anybody else who died, 
was buried and got up again and walked a normal earthly life, I would love to meet that person. But I'm not going to be waiting around for you to bring them to me. Because they're not out there. And by the way, in all those other well-meaning religions, they like Jesus. They just don't think he's so unique. There will come a day when they think he's unique. Unfortunately, it'll be too late. And that's where we come in. For we are the people who have, an, we think, an objective belief in a man named Jesus, sent by God, son of God, very God of very God, who walked this earth among us and died for our sins. That's what we believe. And here's the catch. That same person after his resurrection appeared in very many convincing proofs, the scripture calls it, to these first disciples. And when he appeared, he went about the hard work of getting them ready to do the work that he would do if he were staying here. So where do we start if we're going to become the kind of congregation that is viral, that is spreading like a virus spreads? You know how that is, right? A virus spreads by one bacteria to another, right? That's the way the church spreads. Billboards are great. Advertising is great. Great services of worship are great. Music is wonderful. Catchy, all glossy, four-colored print cards that people get in the mail and invite them to church. They're great. All those things together affect about 30% of the people who join our churches. And you can put anything else you can think of out there that's offering Christ to the world. It represents a part of the people who come to be believers and join churches and serve in communities of Christ that make up our churches today. 70% of the people who join church, and this has been a true statistic for ages, come to church because another human being, another human being, would you look to your left? I want you to see another human being. Now look to your right. See another one? Human beings just like those are inviting other people who don't go to church to come to church. 70% of the people who join churches were invited by somebody they knew, by somebody they trusted, by somebody whose opinion mattered. Think about that. Of all the people who come to church and follow Christ, we're responsible for 70% of them. The rest of them we can advertise and we can get them. Or we can build our churches in the right spots and they'll see the church and they'll come by. Or we can put a cute saying on the drive-by billboard and maybe, who knows, they'll drop in and see what's going on with that church. We might even do something outside that would get their attention and bring them in on their own. But most of them will come because somebody invited them, even though they may have seen you on the Internet before. All right. So that means we've got work to do, right? Well, let's start right there. Let's start this Sunday with a foundation for being an evangelistic church, for being a church full of evangels, or people who go and share the good news about Jesus Christ who has died for our sins. That's the good news we have to share. That's what evangelism is about in its oldest and purest form, but that certainly is not all there is to the evangelism process. But before we talk about all that, I want to ask you a question. Is evangelism a mandatory duty? Or is it a spontaneous response that the Spirit produces? If you read in the Gospels, 
every one of them come to some kind of conclusion saying in some kind of way something about the commissioning by Jesus of those original apostles to go out into the world and to make disciples of his, right? Baptizing and teaching them all the things they've been commanded. That's what happens. And it was for a long time that in recent years that people thought that the Great Commission in those, in those four Gospels were really what was happening and what happens when we are looking for biblical texts to talk about the mandatory requirement of witnessing for God. Now, I must admit, I preached that sermon before, and I also admit it hadn't been all that effective. You know why? You people are stubborn, that's why. <laughs> you know, I can stand up here and tell you Jesus commanded you to, and I can command you to, and you can look at me and you can smile, nod your head, go home, and do exactly the thing you did the day before. Now, I don't understand that, because if I say it, And I know you think, yeah, but if I say it differently, then because that's who we are in our culture. Isn't it wonderful to be in such a pluralistic society where everybody's going to go to heaven by some way or another? If only that could be true. However, it's just not. So therefore, we have work to do. And you say, are you going to answer the question? Not yet. Do we have to do this thing called witness or is it a natural response to the experience of joy from the good news received? When the people who were following Christ saw Christ in, in the uplifted, resurrected body that he was in, heard his words, and saw him go to heaven, after he left, they received the Holy Spirit. We call that Pentecost, right? Pentecost Sunday, when the Spirit came to earth. And Jesus told them a lot of things before then in those days leading up to that. Teaching that was essential if they were going to be the kind of witness that they needed to be. And then he told them to go and wait until they received the Spirit before they did their witnessing work. That sounds a little different than the commission that Jesus, as recorded, Jesus gave them in Matthew and some of the other Gospels. Which is it? Well, I believe it's both. I believe it's a command, but you know what? I don't believe it's quite as the kind of command I'd like. I mean, I found certain commands to be most effective if Jesus would just do them. For instance, if Jesus would make weekly appearances in first one church, then another, show up, stand down front, and say, Y'all need to be witnesses. In fact, you better be witnesses. Because if you don't, you know what's going to happen to you? And Jesus goes, points to so-and-so in the first row. You're going to end up like that. And that person turns to a pillar of salt. That's the kind of witness I need. <laughs> I believe I could be an effective power if Jesus would just show up about once every two or three years, give us a little commandment, one of the essential ones, you know, like fill up the offering plate or else... <laughs> Man... Offering plates would be filled, everybody would be witnesses, churches would be growing, people would buy books that I wouldn't write, I'd just sign them as if I did. I mean, you know, all that stuff would go on and on and on, and everybody would be impressed because God would be seen in such power, and they'd be scared spitless. Not to do what the guy who showed up down front said do, and turn that furlough, or that, yeah, ladies too, into a pillar of salt. They'd just do it, right? I just, long, I prayed for that, but you know, it's just not happening. 
And I've also noticed that people don't get afraid when I threaten them to become a pillar of salt. They just don't think I can pull it off. And they're probably right. So I don't know about this fear thing. I just don't believe the fear thing, although it works in certain spots at certain times and certain moments in a person's life. Show me a person who's on the way to the hospital who's just having a heart attack, and you know the person's not a believer. And many, many times, if you ask that person if they want to profess Jesus Christ as their Savior, they'll pull off that gas mask and say, Hallelujah, I believe. You know, they will. Put the gas mask on, go to the hospital, get all cured, go home the next day. Get up on Sunday and say, man, it's a beautiful day to play golf. Jesus has spared my life, and I've been saved. Fear only goes so far and not very far at all. And I'm not for sure that those commissions given in the Gospels are as much about commandments, although the Greek verbs certainly lend themselves to that thought, as they are more or less predictive of what people who follow Christ and receive the Spirit, do. And this is what really concerns me about the church. Because if this predictive nature of these commissions is true, and the church continues to decline across all the places where the gospel has been spread and saturated for so many years like ours, and churches could continue to decline, what does that mean? What does that mean about us? What does that mean about our witness? Let's go back to the text. It's always a good thing to go back to the text, right? Because after all, we have been saved, most of us sitting in this place, in the past, in some kind of way, through some kind of process. But is it possible that our salvation has grown dull in established congregations? Is it possible that we considered ourselves saved for so long that we've lost the joy of our own salvation? Is it possible that we Christians are the most boring witnesses that Jesus has and we're the most inept witnesses Jesus has as a group? Because after all, hey, I got my card. It says right here, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven when I die. And I'm going to check in a few times along the way. But you know, when you get saved... So far in the past, some people run out of new ways to tell that same old story. Even though that story burns bright in their heart. Now what if being saved is more about continually being saved, a process of being saved that rejuvenates our memory regularly, our spiritual memory so that we have exciting new stories of our own salvation to tell regularly in our lives. Not every 20 years, but regularly. i got a new story to tell, for instance, on salvation. Oh, let's tell it the other way. Sally got a new story of salvation to tell. You know, 40 or so years ago, she met this handsome young man. Is that funny? I don't understand that. You know, sexy guy that he was who happened to have a new car, I'm sure that didn't hurt, and would take her places, and they got married, and soon after they got married, she realized that that old boy that had gotten saved in the past still had a lot of saving needing to be done. And she's been working for 40 years to see about getting this guy saved from head to toe. 
you know, getting him to make up the bed, getting him to help cook supper, clean up the dishes. Yeah, well, this boy still needs some saving, and she can witness to that in terms of that, right? Amen. Amen. <laughs> I won't even go into the way she needs saving. I'll leave it alone for your imagination. <laughs> but she can tell you. You know, this test, text in Acts, I like it because it says some things that we need to be reminded of. First of all, let's be clear that the Jesus who's teaching is a post-resurrection appearance. I would settle for Jesus just showing up in Sunday school class. Because if Jesus showed up in Sunday school class and taught you a few lessons, I doubt you'd ever, ever forget what he taught. Now, you may go Sunday in and Sunday out and see old Joe Blow or Susie Sweet teach the class and hear what she teaches or he teaches, and you may think, you know, that's a pretty good idea. She said some pretty good things today. And three days later, you couldn't say a word about what she said because, after all, your teacher is not Jesus, right? It's not the resurrected Jesus. Now, these first ones, they were lucky. They had the real deal. Jesus showed up regularly in places he wasn't supposed to. He even sat down and ate with them to remind them that he could still take in food even though they were supposed to be careful about touching him, kind of. Stay clear while he's doing his earthly thing at this point. On and on it went. He just kept coming. Why did he keep coming? Because I think the first night they thought they had too much wine. Yeah, that wine was fermented. Don't believe what others tell you. Yeah, they'd had too much wine. It's so sad that Jesus had disappeared and been killed. And yeah, even though they all kind of thought they were with him the night before, it's kind of like, was that real? I mean, really? I mean, did he, did he really die? And then nobody, you know, he shows up again. He starts teaching again. And then, uh, you know, after he did this for 40 days and nights, pretty soon they would have had to admit that they were either slap dab out of their mind, and they wouldn't even have the words to describe that back in that day. They would have had to say, we either possessed by demons, or this Jesus guy really was resurrected from the dead. Now, you know what they believed, right? They believed he was really resurrected from the dead. And that objective criteria, not subjective thought, that objective proof of seeing him, touching him, eating with him, listening to them, became the very foundation for everything else they believed and wrote as the Holy Spirit inspired them. Now, unfortunately, we just can't have that experience, I don't think. In fact, if people come to my office and tell me that Jesus has been showing up personally and speaking to them and teaching them for the last 30 days, I get kind of worried. Because I know Jesus did it in those days, but generally, and most specifically, I don't see him doing that all the time. Now, if they come and tell me they're talking to Jesus daily, I'm good with that. And if Jesus is speaking to them, I can hear that. I can receive that, and I can talk to them. But if they've been singing and talking to him and eating meal with him, I'm, I've got a problem, and so do they, I think. Actually, I'm pretty sure about it. But we can still believe in something as objective as a proof that was given to a group of people who saw him regularly for those 40 days. It's been written about, it's been attested to in all kinds of ways. We believe a lot less evidence many times in our lives about important things that was not nearly as attested to as this witness that this man came back from the dead. Objective witness is important. He taught them what they were to believe and how they were to live. He told them to wait for the Holy Spirit. And here's the shocking thing. They did it. He said, don't you leave Jerusalem until you get the Spirit. Why? Because he knew Peter was sitting in their midst, right? I mean, Peter was thinking about leaving probably the day Jesus was gone. He's, we've got to do a new deal here. You know, this deal is... 
But Peter was not great on patience. I know none of you are like that. But Peter was. But he taught them and he told them to wait for the Spirit. And he said, when the Spirit comes, you will receive power to be my witnesses. And then he said, and you will be my witnesses. All throughout Judea and throughout the world. They obeyed and they prayed in that upper room until they gathered together with 120 people and the Spirit arrived and they received power. And they went out in that power with the knowledge they had accumulated for the resurrected Jesus teaching them. And they told other people what was happening. And even as one was preaching about all the events and the Spirit fell, 3,000 were not only converted that day, but they were added to daily by other people who were hearing from these turned-on evangels the story of Christ's love for them and the forgiveness of their sins that was possible. And the church grew daily. Daily. Because they waited and they prayed and they became filled with the Spirit who then guided them in what they did. That's something, isn't it? That's a wow. That's a big wow. Wouldn't you like to have been part of that? What does that mean for us today as witnesses in this year 2013 of our Lord? Well, we know that this group who taught truth they had received became knowledge, resurrection knowledge, and therefore powerful to them. We know that they were filled by the Spirit. And we know that they received power from the Spirit to be witnesses. We know that they experienced oneness as the body of Christ. They met together and they prayed regularly. They shared their goods in common. They did amazing things, things that people wouldn't even think about doing today. They did them then together. And the joy of the Spirit overflowed so in their lives and in their conversations that they could not help but share what they had experienced. And when they were in that place, others could not help but believe them and find their own faith, even though they could not see Jesus for themselves. So now when I look at our church and I ask myself, what is the problem? I just start thinking about problems. I don't know about you, but I start asking questions when I got a problem. It doesn't matter if it's a financial problem. It doesn't matter if it's a a logic problem, it doesn't matter if it's a biblical problem, it doesn't matter if it's a, some problem that my grandson has given me and I can't figure it out, it doesn't matter. I'm going to start asking questions because I'm that sort. In fact, just the other day I heard that my grandson, when they were leaving, my wife said he just asked questions all the time. I said, and what's wrong with that? After all, my mother considered killing me several times along the way because she was stuck at home with me all day long when daddy was at work and I whied everything. I whied, whied, whied. I still whie everything. I'm a why-asking person. If you tell me something happened, I want to know why. Because I want to make the connection by things that are happening that are good with the whys that caused them to happen. So why is it that us and people like us have so much trouble 
being a witness in 2013. Well, there's several reasons, but I'm going to start on the foundation purpose, just so we can check our foundation. If you're going to build a house, you need to check the foundation first, right? And I know building a house, you can carefully, even after you check the foundation, it's probably going to move anyway. That's another problem. I don't have time to preach about that. Are there whys? Yeah, there are whys. Because we're cheap. Because we do things the easy way. We actually lived in Farmersville. We built our own house. We thought we built the foundation the way it's supposed to be built. Me and a couple of friends laid that foundation ourselves with, with some family the last night because we weren't getting finished. And they came and they poured concrete and the professional concrete man was doing the condition of the slab and he'd been going a long time and he said, we didn't order enough concrete. This slab's too thick. I said, you said three to five inches. You said dig those piers so deep. And we did. Well, this is way too much concrete. You know what went off in my mind? Why does he think this is too much concrete? Because a lot of times when he does slabs, it's probably three inches or two and a half inches in a lot of spots and never five. Mine was five everywhere. Because in Farmersville, like in Carrollton, that clay shifts. I've been in that house 10 years later, and that slab has not shifted because the piers were dug down deep, and so were the valleys that crisscrossed it, and they actually had the foundation they needed to remain stable even in shifting soils. I don't know about you, but I think about that when I see houses breaking together. I think about the foundation. What's the problem with our foundation? Now, when you, you, you say, well, who are you talking about? Ours. I'm talking about Christian believers who are not Baptists. <laughs> I don't particularly like the way they do it, but they at least do it. You know, I mean, they do it a lot, right? Fortunately, in another three weeks, you'll know how to do it better than they do it. But they'll, we'll still have one problem. They do it. Are we going to do it? Time will tell. Because when people do it, and they do it from the right foundation, things happen. So my first question is, do we lack confidence? Are you one of those nimby-pamby Christians who don't believe much of anything in Scripture because science has convinced you that everything science teaches you is correct and what the Bible teaches you is not correct? Do you really lack confidence that Jesus arose from the dead? Do you really lack, conf lack the confidence to believe that Jesus could have been born by a virgin birth? Do you think that God is not able to cross the line, the boundaries of science, whenever God chooses? Do you really think that God intends to transform personalities and lives? How much time do I have? What time did I start? Anybody notice their watch? I didn't either. Yours might have been by, by accident. Mine might have been sort of on purpose. It is my birthday after all, right? It's David's too. David, you got a lunch plan for a certain time? Be careful on your answer. We're good. All right. If you lack confidence in the resurrection, you're not going to be much of a witness. Sorry. If you lack confidence in the Bible because it's not relative enough for you, you're not going to be much of a witness. Now, what I've been told all my life is that the folks in Carrollton believe in the Bible. So I'm assuming this is not your problem, okay? I'm assuming you have confidence in the Scriptures and confidence in the resurrection. I'm giving you all that one. If you're here and you're new to Carrollton and you don't have that... Yeah, well, then hang around. We'll see that you get it. We want you to have confidence. Now, here's I'm going to ask a harder one. Do we lack 
the full indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Do we lack the full indwelling of the Holy Spirit? And you say, well, why do you ask that? Because I do believe that all things equal are things not even equal until we are filled with the Holy Spirit to the point where the fruit of the Spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the faithfulness, the gentleness, and the self-control are running over in our hearts and minds. We're not going to be a joyful witness. Now, I also believe, and here's the part that's the rub, if you are so filled with the Holy Spirit in that way, I believe you cannot help but be a witness. So if you're telling me you don't want to be a witness, first thing I'm going to wonder, especially if you tell me you believe the Scriptures, is I'm going to wonder, are you filled with the Holy Spirit? I didn't say, have you received the Holy Spirit? Because I believe in today's world, post-Pentecost, that when you're baptized and believe, if you ever really believe, you received the Holy Spirit. That's what I believe. Now, the fullness of the Spirit is usually a learned attribute for most of us. We usually are open, open, because of the initial joy of our salvation to experience the presence of the Spirit. We're usually listening early on. We're usually paying attention to what the Spirit might be telling us. We're usually actually even trying to follow the Spirit's will, especially in the beginning. But here's the problem. That's in the beginning. You see, if we don't remain in an open attitude, heart and mind and soul, to the presence of God in our lives, then the process of, ma of maturity, the process of gaining in knowledge and wisdom, the process of being transformed in our, even our very personalities starts getting stunted. And after we've been refusing by passively or aggressively saying no to the Spirit of God, no, you can't have any more of me, no, you can't have any more of my money, no, you can't have any more of my time, no, you can't make me so different that I'll be odd at school, no, no, no. Say no enough often to the Spirit and pretty soon you look like any other do-gooder out there who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ. Because you have said no to the Spirit so often and so long that there's no power in your life any longer. There probably is no real excitement born out of that close connection through the Spirit to the God who saved you. That's what I believe. Because, you see, I just believe that if you're filled with the Spirit in the presence, you can't help to tell someone about Jesus, even if you're shy, even if you can't talk well, even if you're afraid to talk, even if you're not a people person. I know some of you are out there thinking, well, I'm glad it's not me, but my gift is not being an evangelist. No, your gift may not be evangelism, but every one of us is called to be an evangel of the good news. Every one of us. In fact, for every one of us that believes and receives the Holy Spirit, we cannot help but be evangelists. So if you're saying, well, now, I, I try, preacher. You're, you're starting to really mess with me. Yes, I am. So if you're planning on telling me anytime soon that you would be a witness if you could just be a good one, I'm not hearing. Because really when you witness, it's the Holy Spirit speaking through you to others who are being wooed by his Holy Spirit. That's the way this thing works. If that's not going on, then you're not, there's not any witnessing going on. Do we take our salvation for granted? 
could we? There is no way for us to live eternally without Jesus' death. We can't do enough good works to merit heaven. We can't be good enough regularly enough to merit heaven. We can't do anything to merit heaven. We just have to receive it and be thankful to the God who has given us this great gift. Being saved is a gift. And if you've received it, you should be overwhelmed by it. I'm not talking about the presents you got from your parents for your birthday. You know, you want a car and you got a... What did you get? Fill in the blank for me. Bronco. Well, Bronco's a car. You know that doesn't work. You want a car and you got a player. You got an iPod. You got an iPad. And you thought, I didn't want an iPad, I want a car. Now, a lot of the kids on your street were going, well, give me the iPad, I don't have one. You, you keep praying for the car, I'll be happy. <laughs> Sometimes it's that way with salvation. We got saved so long ago, the joy of it has just kind of escaped us. Maybe you served on too many church committees. <laughs> <laughs> you think that's funny to you? I was at a meeting four nights in a row last week. And you know... I don't recall getting home early from any of those meetings. They were all necessary, especially the ones I was talking at. <laughs> we can lose the joy, but not if we're staying connected to the Spirit. The Spirit is the key. Then if we have even done that, we've got the problem with our world. We're going to talk about the world in the coming weeks a lot. We're going to try to analyze our world so we might be smart in how we share this wonderful experience we're having with Christ regularly. Because you see, if we're not smart about it, if we're not using a sound mind and a warm heart, if we're not reflecting on what we've been taught and learned from the scriptures as well as what we've personally experienced in our relationship with Jesus through the Spirit, then we're not going to be a very good witness. We can be a poor witness, or we can be a reluctant witness, or we can even be a damaging witness. That doesn't give us the reason or the right to quit. Don't get me wrong here. We're going to be talking about that in the coming weeks. So I'm just asking you this morning a simple question. Are you willing to be present with God? Are you willing to be filled daily with His Holy Spirit? So that the joy of your salvation might be daily and not quarterly or not yearly, but daily. So that you might know that the transforming power of the Holy Spirit is at work in you to change you and to mow you. You see, when we are that kind of person, we will have more transformation stories to tell than people can listen to. And that's all right because, you know, most people only need one or two, one or two stories from your life. And to see the example of your day in and day out where your soul has been shaped and formed by God's Spirit until they really begin to believe that you're the real, genuine deal. And that's what all these postmodernists want. They don't care so much about our facts. 
They'll have to learn to appreciate facts later. They're all tied up into experience. But when you look at them and you smile and you're not defensive, you're not demanding, and you're not judgmental, and you say, God changes my life every day. And every day is a little bit better. That's what I know. That's what my, who my God is to me. Then you're going to find people saying, tell me more about that God. Gracious God, the one who saved us all, by your spirit, transform us, mold us, and teach us so that we can make the conscious and willing effort by making ourselves available and giving room to the spirit to be shaped into your witnesses so that being a witness will be as natural as breathing. It will not be a forced event. It will be a natural event. It will be in a genuine event. It will be an authentic moment when somebody can look at our face and know we're not repeating stories or cliches or quoting facts. We are sharing what God has done in our life. They cannot be denied.